Welcome everybody to Monday Night Live. My name is Derek Ardner. I'm delighted to be uh, with you tonight. Uh, today we've got Jonathan Reichentel from San Francisco or just south of San Francisco. John Jonathan is a multi-award winning technology and business leader whose career has spanned both the private and public sector. He's been a senior software manager, a director of technology innovation and served as chief information officer at the city of Palo Alto, if I pronounce that right. I had to actually look that up and see where it was. It's uh, uh, between San Francisco and San Jose. A global expert on smart cities. And I've been fascinated by all the artificial intelligence that's been going on and how cities are developing to make themselves much smarter. Jonathan's book, uh, Smart Cities for Dummies, is sold all over the world. And Jonathan's traveled the world advising cities and mayors on how to be better and more efficient in their cities. Welcome, Jonathan, to Monday Night Live. Thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan, my first question is, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this. Okay, well, thanks, Derek. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, it's not often, actually, I get to talk to a, a British audience, uh, although your audience is much broader than that, but it's great to be on your show. Uh, yeah, I'm a tech guy. I've uh, been doing tech for about 30 years. Uh, you know, I've probably done every role there is in, in an enterprise in terms of technology. I've, I've uh, pulled wires through ceilings. You know, I've been, I've net, I've been an administrator on networks. I've done so, software programming, built websites. Um, but anyway, through that time, I became, you know, the, the senior most executive on, on, in the IT organization, the chief information officer. And I became the CIO for Tim O'Reilly at O'Reilly Media, just north of San Francisco a few years ago, actually over 10 years ago now. Uh, wow. And uh, that was, that was uh, an amazing experience. Uh, and then out, out of the blue, I had a, had a headhunter call me and said, hey, uh, Jonathan, would you be interested in, in being the head of technology for a city? And I said, okay, tell me more, tell me more. And it was uh, the city of Palo Alto, which um, is, is often called the birthplace of Silicon Valley. Uh, today, we refer to it more as the heart of Silicon Valley. And you've got folks there like, uh, well, Steve Jobs used to live there when, uh, when he was alive, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, Facebook was started there, Google, uh, you know, we, we have uh, Tesla and HP and all sorts of tech companies that you're all familiar with. So I thought, hey, this is an interesting place to uh, try to bring technology to bear on, on a city because uh, we could experiment. Uh, we have an amazing community and uh, the things we do here could be models for other cities around the world. Uh, so that's just uh, a little bit about uh, me. I'm happy to, to share more as we go through the conversation. That's brilliant. And over to Nigel now, who's going to interview uh, and ask the questions. Great. Thank, thank you, Derek. And thank you, uh, Jonathan. Can I just start with what is a smart city? Yeah, well, that's the, the great, the right place to start, right? <laughs> I would say that um, we, the 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 outcome, the actual goal of of the work is much more important than the term. Uh, now, I've called my book, um, you know, "Smart Cities for Dummies," and I have my children's book, which is about smart cities too. But people will refer to the term sometimes. Uh, smart communities, intelligent communities, you know, uh, inclusive cities, or digital cities. There's lots and lots of terms. So uh, smart city is the one that's stuck. It's the one that 
uh, everybody sort of has rallied around and we're stuck with it, whether we like it or not. Um, what we're faced with uh, in the world now as we enter the third decade of the 21st century is uh, a, a highly urbanized world. In fact, almost 60% urbanized now. And, uh, you know, growing by about 3 million people per week moving into cities, building the equivalent infrastructure of New York City every single month. And we'll do that for the next uh, 40 years. Uh, cities are the center of uh, the human experience, and this will be the century of cities. Cities have been very successful, right? They, they've brought more people out of extreme poverty than anything else humans have created. Um, they have brought more education, healthcare, economics, uh, all the things that are, are driving you know, global growth, uh, both population-wise and economically, uh, uh, out of anything that we have. That all said, and of course, I'm an optimist that you'll, you'll soon find out, uh, our cities have significant challenges, significant challenges. Well, first of all, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is that uh, cities are where we are creating a lot of carbon emissions. And uh, so cities are often uh, and are continue to be a significant source of, the, of our climate crisis. And they're also the brunt of the climate, right? Because so many, but, you know, 1.5 billion people live on coastlines. So they're starting to feel it. Um, cities have terrible transportation issues, right? If you have been in a traffic jam in the last few days, um, or ever in your life, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, we have issues of clean water and clean air, and we have issues of inclusivity. Not everybody is uh, prospering in cities. So that is the world in which we live today. It is only going to accelerate in terms of uh, hyperconnectivity and urbanization. And the question is, you know, if we continue on the trajectory we're on, uh, we don't solve the problem. <laughs> you know, as Einstein said, you know, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Uh, we, you know, we have to do things differently. And one of the tools we have at our disposal is technology, right? Um, technology has been pretty remarkable in, in, in the ways in which it's supporting and often improving our, the quality of life for people. Um, and we have emerging technologies that are bringing us new capabilities. So here's the answer to your question. <laughs> a smart city is one that uses technology and innovation and best practices to improve livability, uh, sustainability, uh, and workability, right, in an urban context. Um, so we're using technology to basically improve the quality of life for the most amount of people. Thank you. That, that's really, really kind of fascinating and interesting to kind of put that backdrop and context, particularly as I'm sure you appreciate, there are different definitions around yeah. the world and what it means to different sort of people. So if we can just touch more on the kind of strategic question, i.e. why do we actually need them? What's the real kind of root um, cause or justification behind why we need them? Yeah, yeah. Well, at some level, every city will become a smarter city in the future. I like to, I like to say actually smarter and more sustainable, right? That, I think we can't leave sustainability out of the, out of the conversation at all. I'll tell you just a quick story. I, uh, uh, when I was working at the city of Palo Alto as the, the senior tech guy, uh, one of my colleagues was the chief sustainability officer. And you know, his role was to work on things like, for example, reducing the use of, of gas in the city, uh, you know, moving to 
to renewables and to you know uh, electric. Uh, his role was to look at more green spaces and look at uh, you know all different aspects of a cleaner, healthier environment. And so he would do his thing. He would have his initiatives, and he would have uh, you know his platform, and I would have mine. And I found myself increasingly talking about the environment, talking about uh, you know uh, the future of transportation, the future of manufacturing, which are all big contributors towards uh, the climate crisis. And he would find himself talking an awful lot about data, and about you know sensors. And what became clear after a while was our worlds were overlapping, increasingly overlapping. And and uh, you know today the topics are very interconnected. Um, so we, you know. I think we have come to the conclusion that the scientific consensus suggests that we, we are, humans have had a big impact on, the, on increasing the average temperatures of the earth around the world. And we have to change our behaviors. Uh, we have to do things differently. And cities are a place where we are producing an awful lot of carbon emissions. Um, so that's one driver, right? That's one, like it's a significant one because it's, in many ways, you could argue existential. I mean, if we, as the most recent uh, intergovernmental climate change report suggests, if we don't take urgent action, uh, we're in trouble. Humanity's in trouble over the next hundred years or so. Um, well, we're not going to hopefully let that happen. <laughs> we're we're going to try to do things differently. We're going to try to convert it to non-carbon, right? We're going to uh, change some of our uh, behaviors around waste management and um, and and how we you know interact with the, with the world around us. So that's one major driver. Uh, I mean, if we kind of distill this down to quality of life, let, let's talk about that. It's always surprising to people when they pick up my book because anyone who knows me knows I'm a tech guy. I love technology. I always have, and they're expecting my book to start with this. We're, we're going to be talking about the use of data to inform decisions and build solutions. In fact, the first sentence of my book is, this is a book about people. And I never want to lose sight of that. This is a topic about humans. My company is called Human Future. Right? I'm very much, this is not for me some sort of you know, uh, interesting side project. This is, this is what I believe. And this is a mission right, to improve the quality of life for people. And how do we do that in a hyper-urbanized world? Well, we improve the urban condition. Right? It should not be acceptable to any of us that uh, to, to go 12 miles here in the United States, for example, uh, to, to go from home to work, assuming we do go to an office in the future. But let's say we, a lot of people still go to the office. We go 12 miles, it takes an hour, right? Because you're back-to-back -back traffic. Uh, that's a broken system. That's right. really broken, right? Um, and I've had the, the pleasure of traveling all over the world to major cities everywhere, in every, in every major country in the world and more. And one of the things I notice is when I get to the airport in some place I've never been to, uh, normally I'll, I'll get a van or a taxi or an Uber or something to take me to my hotel. It doesn't matter what time of the day it is. I'll get into the Uber and I will hit traffic. And it's just not fun to, to sit in you know, Hanoi and Vietnam. And uh, you know, the distance isn't far from the airport to the hotel, but it's going to take probably an hour and a half, two hours. Um, so transportation is one. Um, energy. Well, we, I, I kind of mentioned energy from the perspective of climate change. But as we urbanize rapidly, we're not losing our appetite for, for energy, right? We, we, we want abundant energy, but we, it needs to be clean uh, and it needs to be safe and it needs to be at the right cost. Um, so you start to see that finally, finally in, in sort of list of different motivations per your question is 
uh, and I'll make this sort of a little joke, which is how many of us wake up on a given day when we know we have to deal with government? Let's say you need to get your birth certificate or you need to you know, start the process for a permit. <clears throat> Who wakes up and says, I can't wait to deal with government. I can't wait to go to my local city hall or local city office to do this. Nobody really does that. Why? Because this, the process and the experience is not pleasant. It's not fun. A lot of the times it requires us to go somewhere, right? So you, you actually have to go to a building, park, you know, go into a room, take a number, wait. Right? Then you get up to the counter, right? And then, and then the, uh, the person on the other side of the counter says, uh, do you have uh, the following documentation? And you notice that you have three of the four things you need. Well, that means you have to say, I got to go home. You got to go home. You know, anyway, I'm making the bigger point. It can be ugly and, and it can be many, many visits. I think we'd all say that, hey, you know what? Wouldn't it be great to do most things that you have to do with government on your smartphone or on your laptop computer? You know, like uh, I want to request a birth certificate. I just go online, type my name in, you know, some security pass, whatever, hit submit and I get my, I can print my birth certificate uh, or I can request a permit or uh, whatever it is, like report a crime or something, whatever it is. There is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity uh, for digitalization in, in, uh, in governments, uh, right from cities, you know, through the counties, you know, federal, and then all sorts of agencies across the economies. <clears throat> this is the digital transformation of government. And it's beginning, and we have some really great examples um, of work, good work that's been done uh, in, in, in cities all over the world. So I'd say that the last motivation is a better customer, a better citizen experience or a better constituent experience to be more inclusive, um, is that you, we, we need to be able to conduct government activities online in a simple, uh, low cost and frictionless way. Interesting, because one of the questions I was really going to sort of ask was really, but you kind of touched upon that, is the kind of the dual benefit between the individual citizen and the kind of like wider society. So as we have more smarter local government or smarter, if we can have a smart central government, how that can manifest into the benefit of its citizens. And I'm just sort of wondering about other interconnected services and how through that smart city label that will mm -hmm. improve life for those people particularly as we have an aging population and as younger people become hyper digitalized they will have a demand for what they perceive as a future smart city and if it isn't smart enough they'll migrate and relocate so i just wondered what your kind of um, view was in terms of how that services both citizens and local authorities and government. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the, the idea that people would move if the city wasn't smart enough, uh, it, it applies to a very, very, very small group of people. So I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking too much about that. But, but I will say this. Um, and, and this is becoming, again, as time passes, less of an issue. One of the things that we all expect in our cities, and also we should have in our rural settings, but our cities, because that's the topic of our conversation today, is, is good connectivity, right? We, we, we expect to be, get, to be able to get on the internet with any device in our home or have our home get on the internet, and it to be good quality, a good quality experience. 
the appetite for dial-up <laughs> or you know uh, um, uh, older forms of or no connectivity is unacceptable. And so you know we we have in most of our major cities uh, it, you you can get online. The question is, what's the experience like? Is it slow or blazingly fast, or is it just annoying? Right? People want blazingly fast, uninterrupted, you know, internet access, just the same way as you. You expect this morning or today when you woke up, you turn the lights on, the lights go on. You don't really think about it, right? That's what the internet's like. We, we need to have it as, as convenient and as seamless as electricity. And, and some communities don't. And even here in Silicon Valley, in a city like San Jose, which we call the capital of, of Silicon Valley, uh, there's, there's thousands and thousands of people with no access. There are thousands and thousands of people without, with slow access, right? And so we're still working on it here in, in 2021. We're still working on this issue, even in some of the most developed cities in the world. Um, so communities without good, what we call digital infrastructure are going to be a lot less attractive, but they're going to be a lot less of those communities in the future. Um, now, if we, if we go to places like Lagos in Nigeria, right? Uh, an incredible mega city, you know, uh, tens of millions of people. It's growing very rapidly. We'll add several more million in the years ahead. The country itself is, is growing very rapidly. They don't have good internet access, but the government has made it a priority. And one of the key priorities of Lagos, uh, the city and the, and the region, is to uh, get uh, fast internet to, to as many people as possible over the next X amount of years. Um, so it, it, it is an, an initiative that's valuable everywhere. I'll give you one more example about digital infrastructure. Um, there's a, there's a uh, city in uh, Tennessee, and it's called Chattanooga. Uh, won't be the first city you think of when you think of the U.S., but it's a, you know, it's a former manufacturing town. Uh, like a many, many manufacturing towns in the U.S., it, it, uh, after manufacturing shifted, went abroad and moved within the United States, it, it went into decline, and they had to reinvent themselves. And a few years ago, the, 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 the energy provider uh, uh, who was, uh, the organization was associated with the city organization, um, said, we're going to make a commitment. We're going to bring fiber, you know, the, the fastest type of internet to every home in the city. And the whole country looked at this. This was, this was interesting, right? Uh, not the first city you would think of to be sort of at the, at the leading edge of, of connectivity, but they did it. And they did attract industry and they did attract new people. Um, and it's largely worked for them. Now their circumstances uh, has have been fairly unique as as one of the things I learned quickly in this world of cities is every city is just a little bit different. Uh, it's hard to make generalizations, um, but that did act as a catalyst uh, for for change. I want to give you one more example, uh, not related to digital infrastructure, uh, based on your question again. And this is, you know, what does it mean? What what does this work mean? Like the smart city work mean? to uh, communities, um, directly to people. Well, there's, there's two very low hanging fruit items. Sorry for that bad expression. Um, but there's the, the first one is, um, do people have access to information that concerns them, right? It, here, here's a little secret, I'll tell you. Here in the US, and I think this is the case in most developed uh, democratic countries, is the data that is created by cities belongs to you and belongs to me doesn't belong to some, you know, person, to some civil servant at City Hall, right? Um, data belongs to you. And the question becomes, um, how easy is it for you to access that data? Uh, do you have to jump through hoops, you know, or can you not access it? Or when you access, 
when you request data, do you get like a, 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 a printout, <laughs> like, a, <laughs> you know, 15 pages of uh, lists of uh, rows and, and columns of data? Or do you get, uh, uh, you know, uh, API, an application programming interface that allows you to directly access the data you want on the extreme end, right? Um, so communities can do an awful lot to make their, what belongs to you, our data available to us. Um, and then you can do things like see um, uh, all sorts of data that helps you with your life, like uh, something that can help you build a business, uh, something that can help you uh, understand, for example, uh, where to live. You know, what, what's the crime like or the quality of schools or all these things that we want to know. The final point is, um, you know, today or, or, or years, years ago, you'd pretty much elect people and just let them go. Like you, you make decisions on my behalf. You, you know, I, we've elected you or you've got this job at City Hall. It's all yours. That's no longer how we do government. Uh, today, uh, people want a voice. Despite democracy, more people in the community want to be able to uh, put their hand up and say, I got a different opinion. <laughs> they want it to be heard. And so can, what can cities do to create forms of community engagement that allow more voices to be uh, captured in the conversation? And of course, you know, just having open forums is important, but more digital platforms are going to allow for that. And many communities, uh, again, all around the world are creating platforms for greater community engagement. Interesting. You, you mentioned earlier being a kind of tech guy, and that's a nice sort of juxtaposition to the sort of next question really is, what types of technologies are being used in smart cities? Can you give us a kind of overview? Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's start easy and then we'll get a little harder and I'll, I'll just mention a few. Um, the first thing, of course, is uh, we'll start at the almost one of the ways I would think about your question is do it in layers, right? So the basic layer is uh, good internet access, right? Good high speed, both fixed and wireless internet access. Okay, so connectivity is an absolute priority, right? So that that would be the first technology. Every community needs to either, um, you know, finish that work. <laughs> <laughs> needs to help make it happen, you know, finish it, or it needs to start that work. I hope it's not starting, right? So every community member, every constituent requires a good digital infrastructure. That's number one. And, number, and secondly is uh, access to services, right? Um, and increasingly those services should be digital, right? It, it, it turns out that when you create an inventory or catalog of government services, most of them don't actually need interaction with a human being. They're very mundane. They're very, I want this, give me this, you know, type thing. And, you know, where today you may have to make an appointment or make a phone call or go to a place, um, you know, you, you should be able to just go online and simply find the thing you want in your community. So, uh, you know, digital uh, access, digital platforms, mobile apps to support this. You know, we, 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 mobility is the single most popular way in which we interact with the internet today, not laptops or smart uh, watches, or it's, it is mobile devices and, and specifically uh, uh, smartphones, right? So that, that's the second one or whatever, if you're keeping count. <clears throat> um, making data available. So platforms for data access, that's really key. Because not only does that create more transparency where community members can see data and access data, but it can also add to innovation where community members can build solutions based on data. Um, and you know, it, that, by the way, 
when you have greater transparency, there's a, there is a link with greater trust. So you can actually uh, start to reduce some of that tension so many communities feel between their government and their, and their citizens. <clears throat> Let's get a bit more sophisticated then. Uh, a very quick uh, and, and, and significantly uh, large and very large in the future growth of technology and applications is this thing called the Internet of Things, the Internet of Things. Let me quickly explain. Um, there is today about seven and a half billion people on the planet. Soon we'll hit about eight billion. It'll continue to go up to about 11 billion before it starts to come down. But that's the, the pathway we're on in terms of demographics. You can only ever connect the amount of people there are. right? So uh, even when we get to 11 billion people on the planet, uh, we can only connect 11 billion people. right? Um, the, the same constraint does not apply to things, things like your thermostat or, or camera or your dishwasher or your music system or a factory. right? All these things can be connected. Uh, because it's, it creates all sorts of very valuable utility. My washing machine, when it does my clothes, when it's finished, I get a text message saying, put your clothes in the dryer. <laughs> the, if, you ever, if you had any doubt that the robots will be in charge in the future, I have evidence. <laughs> it's, it's my, my, my washing machine bugs me. It's like it's, like it's frustrating. But, um, but, but this is the kind of thing that happens when you start to, to connect things. So we are connecting lots and lots of things. Today, we believe there's about 35 billion connected devices in the world, right, in 2021. The projection is by 2025, that number will grow to 75 billion connected things. So we're going to add 40 billion. I'm saying billion here, by the way, B. Uh, it's a lot. Uh, 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 over the next four years, that's about 10 billion a year, which is almost about a billion devices per month, if you, do, if you like math and you like doing the math. <clears throat> what are we doing with those things? We're connecting our homes. Right. This this Christmas season, this holiday season, you're probably going to get some sort of smart home device, either as a gift or give somebody, you know, because it's very popular. Right. That's connecting our homes. They all connect to Wi-Fi, which connects to the Internet. Right. Um, our factories, our factories are going to have uh, and are increasingly having connected machines so we can do things like monitor performance and do predictive maintenance and all sorts of cool things in our smart factories. But the real place which will be sizable is our city context, right? The largest use of Internet of Things connected devices in the world today are our cities. About 20% of that 35 billion connected devices are in our cities. And what are they doing? Well, they're doing things like uh, air quality, right? They're doing things like counting traffic, okay? Now, I um, before I worked in the city, I would have thought the idea of counting traffic was pretty boring and not very interesting turns out to be really important to cities right you got to count traffic you got to understand things like uh um the volume of traffic at any given point in time at any place in uh, any place you got to understand things like speed of traffic direction of traffic type of traffic because that helps you design cities it helps you design intersections uh it, it helps you understand safety problems um it, it, basically being able to monitor and count traffic is a significant contributor. So we're doing that now with sensors, not with people with clipboards. That's how we used to do it 10 years ago. Five years ago, we used to do it with people with clipboards. We do it with uh, internet connected sensors now. Um, we can, for example, use those IT, which we are using them for water management. So um, in the city of Palo Alto, where I worked uh, for a long time, uh, we, had a, we have a, a creek which runs through the community. 
And just because of the topography and the climate, occasionally that creek would flood. It would overflow. And when it would overflow, it would seep into neighborhoods and it would be not fun for those houses in those neighborhoods. Um, so we put a sensor network into our creek, all along our creek, so that when it was rising during a storm, we would know the level of water at any point in time at any place on that creek. And so we can make timely decisions like evacuations or perhaps um, if there was a, you know, overflow mechanism, we could open the op overflow mechanism to reduce the, the level of water. In some communities in the world, when water comes from a source to a destination, and this is, this is for me is breathtaking, 90% of the water is lost in leaks on its way to its destination. So imagine you're in a very dry part of India right now, and you know, water is precious, and you have a well, and the water comes from the well to a, a town, and 90% of it leaks. They don't get 90% of it. That's unacceptable. How do, how do we fix that? Well, it's very difficult to fix with old technology, but it's easier with new technology. Using Internet of con Things connected sensors, we can get uh, really, uh, we can get pinpoint uh, accuracy on where the leaks are and fix them. And so we can be really better at that. Um, so uh, maybe I'll pause there because you have more questions, but I have a lot more to share, but please. <laughs> okay. No, it's really interesting. I mean, if you had a time machine, what would be your ideal future of how smart cities will look like and feel like well part of it is yeah i love the question part of thinking about that is what i'd like it to be and then there's what i think is going to happen right and hopefully there's some intersection in the future right one of the things we can say with some confidence is the the emergence of the automobile, the car, right, has been a remarkable innovation for humanity. But it's also been a real problem too, right? Car, cars have brought a lot of change to the planet. Uh, they've allowed us freedom, freedom to move, to move products and services. Uh, they've, they've just, you know, in so many ways, uh, added to the quality of life. Uh, but in our sort of dense urban environments, Today, cars are probably more problematic than they are beneficial. And I'll tell you why, on a few levels. Firstly, they are gas-powered cars or petrol-powered cars emit a lot of carbon, right? It's, it's sizable. Transportation is about 30% of carbon emissions in the world. And a lot of it is in cities, right? You got that. Next, you got accidents. Cars kill 1.3 million humans per year. We don't really talk about that. 1.3 million humans die in car accidents and, and, and tens of millions are injured, right? Then there's the mental duress, right, of sitting in traffic. And then finally, we have built our cities around cars, not around people. This, this is one of the phenomena of the 20th century. You know, th think about the grid system in the United States or a new, a new uh, a state that's built in the UK, right? 80 to 90% of the design decisions are based on the car, right? And humans driving cars. Um, so, you know, we have parking lots and parking spaces. In many urban cities, or sorry, in many urban environments, uh, it's, it's, the, it's been determined that up to 60% of land use is for cars. <laughs> so you're getting the picture. Yeah. Um, a future world for me is one in which 
well, ideally there's no cars, there's an alternative, um, or we are much less dependent on cars. Okay. Right. Just one sort of final question. Can you talk a little bit more about how London and Bristol have developed to become a smart city before I hand you back to Derek? Yeah, sure, sure. <clears throat> well, I want to clarify the question. There, there, there is no such thing as a smart city today. Uh, we, we, uh, we are trending towards building better cities. Um, cities are, are never finished, right? So I just want to be clear that uh, if you ask me, like, could I name the top five smart cities in the world? There's, there's no answer to that question. There are no smart cities. Um, there are cities engaged in smart city strategies. They are engaged in doing important things to, to increase the metrics on what's important to them, right? And London and Bristol are two outliers in the UK. Now, there are others. I have been doing a little homework on this, and there are a few others. <laughs> but I got to say this. If, if we were... If we were Going to rate the effort based on marketing, you know, on, on branding and also awareness, London and Bristol, and Bristol in particular, or what's called, I think, Smart Bristol, get, gets the prize. Um, I think what London has done well is, of course, it, it's a massive, uh, you know, mega city. It's a, it's a, it's a massive thing. So uh, some of the things that London does are, are probably not that apparent to Londoners. Uh, it's a lot of back office, a lot of automation on the back office. Um, but there is a lot of digitalization now happening. Um, there, London has a chief digital officer and a sizable team that does work on more and more services that you can access on a smartphone or on a website. So you, know, you think of typical uh, London services that you need in your, in your local community, and you're probably going to find uh, an increasing number of digital ways you can do that, where in the past you did them uh, by going into an office. Um, Bristol, being a smaller city, um, has made, uh, has, has, has had more progress and uh, has hit more areas of their community. For example, uh, better uh, waste management. So, you know, one of the things about waste, and that's a big topic, but I'll be brief, is, you know, in, in, in an in a urban community, uh, we go around and we pick up trash cans or rubbish bins, right? Um, when, uh, whether they are full or not, right? So, you know, the, the, the trash collector goes around, goes down a street and, and takes the bins and dumps them, whether they're full or not. Wouldn't it be more efficient just to go to the bins that were full, right? And so what you need are smart bins, smart trash cans. And, and Bristol has been working on, for example, waste management, where they uh, have sensors on these trash receptacles that allow the city to be more efficient in how it picks picks up the, the trash and manages the trash. Just one example of many. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much for answering those sort of brief questions and giving us a, a, an overview of what a smart city is. I'm gonna hand back to Derek and then there's been a couple of questions in the chat. So I don't know, Derek, do you want to I'll cover take those? Yeah, I'll take those. Uh, Jonathan, that's absolutely fasc fascinating. And I'm sure we've got lots more questions for you. If people would be kind enough to put those in the chat box. Uh, we'll sure. keep going for about five minutes and then if you wouldn't mind staying on after I stop the recording that uh, would be fantastic so thanks very much the first question from John Lisby down in Southampton says Jonathan why do you assume that cities will continue to grow the pandemic has demonstrated that people can work remotely to a great extent in the UK house prices in cities are falling countryside living is growing aren't things about to change no, thank you for the, that important question. And it comes up often. Uh, it, it is a very uh, a, a question that we need to discuss. Um, sure, the pandemic has been 
uh, horror story, of course, and has uh, caused us to be thinking differently about a whole range of topics. So the first thing I want to say is most of the world's urbanization, by the way, a lot of it is happening in Southeast Asia, right? Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't put the UK or, or Europe uh, uh, anywhere near the top of the list in terms of uh, rapid urbanization. Um, I mean, just population growth is pretty slow in the United States and Europe relative to, uh, you know, Southeast Asia and, and African nations. Um, so some of the phenomena I'm talking about uh, doesn't really apply. You know, it is it, is very subtle in our neck of the woods, but uh, you, you head down to the Philippines or Vietnam uh, or or Nigeria, you know, uh, and, and and many other parts of Africa, and you'll see a whole different experience happening. There's, people are moving in millions per week into those urban environments. Millions. You don't see millions of people moving into you know, um, Milton Keynes or, uh, or Kent, you know, <laughs> that rapidly, right? <laughs> um, so the, the phenomena of rapid urbanization is, is, is not necessarily focused in, in, in our areas. The pandemic did cause, for example, in the United States, uh, a number of people to move out of communities. Uh, here in California, for example, where I live, uh, cost of living is very high. Um, living in Silicon Valley, where I do, it's a very dense, busy environment. A lot of people are happy to move out. You know, America is largely empty. You know, we, we could have a lot more people living in rural areas or uh, in, in the smaller towns. And, and we did see people move. We did see. Um, but it's not even a rounding error. It, it doesn't really count relative to, you know, where we're headed. Uh, generally, in terms of uh, where we see over the long term, uh, we see the uh, net immigration uh, into cities. Um, so, you know, uh, on balance, the data is pretty clear about this. Uh, we are going to move from a world which is about 58% uh, urban today. Uh, we're going to add another uh, 2 billion to cities by 2050. So we'll, we'll get to about 70% of the wor world will be urban by the middle of the century, which is not so far away. And by the end of the 21st century, we're probably in the 80 percentile of all human beings living in a city. Well, how, how do you actually define cities? A question, another question in the chat box. Because uh, uh, we would, in the UK, you have to have a, I think you have to have permission from the government to call yourself a city, otherwise you're a town. Yeah, there, there's no there's no universal agreement on that word. I, I had to look it up when I wrote my book, and I've had to I've been asked that many times. Uh, depending on the organization, you know, if, if you if the United Nations has their definition, you know. Uh, I bet the national government in the UK has their own definition. Um, you know, it, it, it basically at a high level, it is a, a dense human settlement uh, that provides most human needs, right? And it's a sort of a coordinated, organized and governed area. Um, we don't get a lot of data on actual number of people or, or actual geographical size. Um, one way uh, that I've heard it described, and, and again, I want to be real clear about this, this is not a universal definition, is that it has a minimum of 50,000 people, and uh, there's a density of 150 people per square mile, right? That is just one way of thinking about it, but I wouldn't use that universally. Uh, you have to look at your, uh, your, your country and maybe even your, your city, uh, your, your, I should say maybe your county or regional definitions to, to get the real answer to that. 
Now, we've got some questions from people fairly close to you, actually. Uh, sure. Janice, Lip, Janice Litvin uh, lives in uh, San Francisco, I think, or just oh, out cool. of San Francisco. She's, uh, <laughs> she's a friend of mine, and she's done a talk on this show. Uh, so there's two <laughs> or three questions from Janice. How can cities improve their communication systems when it comes to interacting with citizens during a crisis, flood, fires, and riots? Do you want to take that one first? Yeah, I'll try to be briefer so we can get to more questions. Um, I run a program at Pepperdine University. You may be familiar down in Malibu. It's called Leading Smart Communities. I created it and I run it a few times a year. It's very popular. And um, one of the subjects that we spend a week on is communications. And my answer or the way I start that conversation is cities do a really bad job of communicating. Uh, there's two characteristics. Number one is we only really talk when there's something bad happening. <laughs> Right. So, you know, if, if there's a crisis, if there's corruption or you know, there's something bad happening, you know, we're getting a big story. That's when cities they are reactive. Right. They're they're not proactive. And secondly, is they don't do marketing. Cities don't market themselves, really. You know, outside of the big ones, cities don't talk about the good stuff they do. Like, I, I don't know, you know, each of you probably live in different communities around the UK and elsewhere. And if I asked you, what, what's the top five initiatives that your community is working on? I'm going to guess you're, you're going to say, I don't know, right? Because the city is not telling you. So the, the, the actual baseline here, the, the, you know, is, is low. Um, what can they do? Cities need to get their act together and actually consider communications to be a core competency, right? They need to have chief communications officers. Uh, they need to have people who are savvy at social media and crafting emails and using things like online newsletters. Um, they got to become as uh, sophisticated as the private sector is um, in alignment with, you know, public sector values. Right. Um, you know, uh, so so uh, there's a massive gap there in terms of becoming smarter. This is an area to become smarter in. Sure. One more question um, sure. is about cars and vehicles. I mean, in London, we've been encouraged not to take our cars into London. And in fact, in the last three weeks, if you go inside the North Circular Road, which is pretty long way out, you uh, you get a big, uh, big charge. Um, so um, I would say your land quote is, is nothing like that in London, in the area of London. I always go by uh, always go by train. Um, what do you think about that? Is it all the new cities where that is the case or is it just the US? Well, you know, London made some really good decisions uh, over 100 years ago, you know, uh, building the tube system, uh, you know, turns out to be a fantastic decision. Um, and by the way, is the envy of the world. So you, <laughs> using public transport as uh, 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 in, in the UK, as an example, is an outlier. It's, the, it's like how you should do it, really. Um, and of course, you know, I know that many of you probably cringe when I say that because you see, you're like thinking the experience could be so much better, but it is so much better than 99% of the world. Um, so that, so, you know, the tube system, the buses, the trains, you know, uh, even the, in the, the black taxi service you have in London, the things that you have there um, are not good examples for the rest of the world because the rest of the world does not have that, doesn't have the money, uh, doesn't, you know, uh, has no ambition, you know, around, uh, around that. Um, what we can do and what we are seeing in the world is uh, converting uh, like uh, dense urban environments, particularly in the downtown areas of communities, uh, to, be, to be pedestrianized, to move cars out, to be around the city. Um, a lot of cities have found that, and this is a, a low entry point, 
is uh, they're encouraging use of bicycles, right? You know, when I was asked at, a, at an event a few weeks ago, like, what do I think is the, mo is the most sophisticated, coolest technology right now? And of course, people think I'm going to say artificial intelligence or quantum computing or something like that. I said, bicycles. <laughs> bicycles are probably one of the most amazing urban innovations right now in our communities. Why? Because they're absolutely thousand percent game changing, absolutely game changing uh, in the way we get around for health. For, for, for sound, you know, for pollution. In every way, uh, if we can create an urban environment that is uh, supportive of a cycling community, uh, I think we make a big difference. By the way, a good example is the great city of Paris. I went there about uh, 10 years ago on a, a, a sort of a, a government trip, and uh, we met with the deputy mayor of Paris. And he told the story of, he said, Parisians uh, were, never rode bicycles. And, and the, the, the city holds started talking about, hey, what would happen if we made those, you know, uh, for rent bicycle racks available around the community? And most prisons said no one would ever use it. The prisons are not going to use bicycles. And um, so they tried it and they deployed, I'm going to make this up, like 100. Um, and immediately they were all taken. And they said, okay, would they plug? then they, they, they deployed 1,000. They were all taken. I don't know if you've seen video or have been in Paris today, but it's almost all bicycles. In, in sort of in eight to 10 years, Paris has been transformed into a cycling city. This is remarkable. And, and it has big consequences. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, we've got quite a few more questions, but sure. uh, I'm just going to close the meeting now. And thank you very much. And thank Nigel for, oh. uh, uh, for his part in the, in the interview and also for uh, getting you here. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. I think we could go on for hours, but uh, I'm going to stop the recording now. That's your uh, latest book, is it, up there? Exploring. That's my children's book. That's the children. Oh, that, that's probably uh, up, more up my street than uh, any <laughs> other book, actually. But uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for joining Monday Night Live. And uh, please contact Jonathan if you want to. You can find him on LinkedIn if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on the Negotiators podcast. Jonathan Reichenthal, thank you so much for joining us. And could you give uh, Jonathan the usual thanks in the usual <laughs> way on Gallery View? Thank you so much. Thank you, Derek. What a pleasure.